right, this is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Today, straight from beautiful Tel Aviv, Chen Mazig, world-renowned social media extraordinaire, pro-Israel. There's so I don't know how to describe you. And <laughs> how do I describe you? You're uh, the embodiment of intersectionality. <laughs> this is straight from something you wrote that I saw on Facebook this morning. The son of an Iraqi Jewish mother and North African Amazigh Jewish father. What is Amazigh? Amazigh are the Berber uh, tribe in, in North Africa. My family were part of the tribe, my father's, my father's side, and they were Jewish as well. So you're definitely not white. Definitely not. Okay, so you grew up in an underprivileged community, a gay boy in the closet who then became an openly gay man, identify as Jewish, by, but secular. And then you, you write in your post, you think as a Jew of color who's gay and from an underprivileged background, the left would be a natural fit. And yet, from the point of view of the American Jewish and Israeli left, one cardinal sin keeps me from their ranks. What is that sin? Um, it's being Israeli and a uh, damn proud one. That's, uh, that's a problem, you know. It's a problem to be a proud Israeli. Mm -hmm. In progressive circles, yeah. Now, you speak on campuses around the country, right? Yeah. Give us an example of some of the problems you've encountered. Um, you know, I feel like in every country I go to, if I go to South Africa, I hear a lot about Israel as an apartheid state. When I go to the UK, to London, I hear that Israel is an uh, imperial colonial state. When I go to Canada, Israel is a country that genocide the indigenous community. And when I go to America, it's a lot about racism. So what I feel like is that all those you know, those issues that countries are dealing with, their own sins, uh, they're really scapegoating Israel to, to deal with it instead of dealing with their issues themselves. So I do see it a lot in America now that uh, the issue is racism, uh, that Israel is a racist country um, that is has done some sort of uh, uh, ethnic cleansing of the uh, of the brown communities in, in Israel, although 60% of Israeli Jews are Middle Eastern people and North African people, and people just don't know that. Um, and I get I get challenged a lot on campuses for for being Israeli, for being Zionist, um, and for being progressive and supporting liberal values. You um, know, Chen, one thing I find that no one talks about, or hardly anyone, is that the whole movement against Israel that you see on campuses and you see everywhere, whether it's BDS or other other stuff, um, has been a royal failure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they they haven't hurt Israel at all. Yeah, and so I keep. Hearing about this, they just kind of hurt their own causes. So all this, all this hatred that's driven towards Israel. How do you, how do you make sense of that? I think you know they they failed in their in their uh, um, uh, in the in the goals that they put out there that they said that they want to do. I mean they they know that they can't hurt the Israel economy. No one can. I mean Intel invested seven billion dollars. Microsoft opening opening more centers. Uh, Facebook. Uh, Israel economy is not going to to fail because of BDS, because of the boycott movement. Um, but I do think that they're hurting Jewish the Americans. And, they're hurting and, the brand. And the brand of Israel, of course, and, mm -hmm. and Zionism and the idea that... They're poisoning the name. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's and they're tainting us, and that's that's what they're about. I mean, I don't think that they that they even seriously think that boycotting Sabra Humus would, you know, would collapse the Israeli government. But... This right. is it's it's a it's an act in, in, and it's a it's a something in, in the path of, of uh, a greater goal that making Israel into a pariah state. Now you get criticism from both sides, right? That's what you <laughs> you wrote a funny line. In other words, I am someone who no one wants to exist. It's a funny line. <laughs> yes. So just uh, unpack that for us. Um, I you know I. I was thinking about it the other day, and I said, maybe I should just stop calling myself progressive. Maybe I should stop calling myself a liberal and just join the right wing and say, from now on, I'm right wing, I'm nationalist. I, you know, I, 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 I even go as far as saying that the white race is the master race. <laughs> you really <laughs> are progressive. I mean, I... I yeah. Right? Explain how you're a progressive. I think that at the end of the day, progressive is someone that believes in social justice and equality and equality for LGBTQ communities, for minority communities. I truly believe in those values. And you fought for those in Israel and you still do, right? I Refugees. Do. Yeah, yeah. And I work for, I'm, I'm volunteering in the LGBTQ task force in Israel. I volunteer in, in, uh, uh, in asylum seekers centers in, in South Tel Aviv. I do care about those issues because it's my country and I want my country to be better. Um, but I also want my country to exist. I don't have anywhere else to go. I mean, uh, I don't have an American citizenship. I'm not going to apply to Iraqi or Tunisian one. And I'm home. I'm, I'm in Israel. That's where my family um, uh, came from, even if they were in Iraq for or Babylon for a period of time. We returned home, and I'm not going to, to give up on it, and I'm not going to even negotiate my ident this part of my identity, just like I'm not going to negotiate my progressive identity. Yeah, so, you know, you're at the intersection of 
loving Israel and criticizing Israel. Mm -hmm. A lot of liberal Zionists in America say the same thing. For some, what's different about you? I think that I get a lot of attention because I um, my identity is, is one that is of a progressive. I mean, some no, people can't really accuse me of being a, a fake progressive. And I mean, I'm gay and I'm a person of color. I'm Iraqi and Tunisian. And I, I care about those parts of my identity and I advocate for it. And I'm actually walking the walk because I am work, working and volunteering and, and, and organizing to really make a difference to my communities and promote equality. Um, so... I, I am progressive by what I do. Um, the problem is that what I say a lot of times doesn't fit with what progressives should say. And I think that's what, that's the problem. You know, if I can permit myself an yeah, observation, yeah, what I've seen that distinguishes you is when you talk about your love for Israel, it's, it's different. You don't just set it up as a kind of, well, you know, I love Israel, but... You know, look at all the horrible things it does, and, you know, it's got to fix the problems with Palestinians, and it's not democratic anymore, and blah, blah, blah. So your love for Israel is not as a kind of a setup that comes before the word but. You know, it's like, it, it's very passionate. Right. And it's rare to see this kind of unbridled, you put a period after your love and defense of Israel. Yeah. Put a period, and then you start a new sentence, and then we got to do a much better job with the refugees, we must, right. you know, stop ruling over 2.8 million Palestinians and stuff like that. So, this, what do you think of that? Yeah, no, you you put it. I think that's that's really the difference. That I'm, uh, I can say that Israel is not perfect. I mean, no country is perfect. Who is perfect? No one. And and I think, you know, we've we've done a lot in 70 years. We've there's so much to celebrate. But I was brought up knowing that even if I criticize, even if I don't like everything that my grandmother does, I'm still gonna love my grandmother no matter what, and I'm going to respect her, uh, and I'm not going to go around telling everyone how bad she is, you know. And, and you're not gonna put the word but. Uh, right. Exactly. I have to say, you know, Bobby, I love you. Right. I love you, but, but you know, I mean, you know that 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 Google you made last week is terrible, and those things you did in your youth—I don't know, I can't right. live with that. Right. You don't put the word "but," and I mean, it sounds like a small thing, but I think it's really big. It's like you you defend Israel like a tough—I don't know. Right winger, maybe <laughs> like a tough lover of Israel, a passionate lover of Israel, yeah. but you criticize it like a liberal Zionist, like a, a leftist. You do both, like you put both hats on, and I don't think people are used to that. Yeah, and that's that's my goal with my talk is to tell people you can criticize Israel, and you don't need to criticize Israel like the the mainstream on on the on the American Jewish left that I see uh, the way that they're doing it. I mean, there there's a way to criticize Israel when you love Israel, uh, and I don't believe in in the idea of uh, you know I love Israel so much that it's tough love, and and that's why I keep on criticizing Israel all day long. That's why I keep on t talking about how bad it is all the time. If that's all you do, if your connection to that's Israel that's just tough, right? And then that's just tough. There's, there's no, no love. love, right? And if you have a movement, for example, like if not now, right. where the whole purpose of the movement is to end the occupation, mm -hmm. to malign the occupation, and so many of us don't like it. Yeah, you I mean you take yeah. heat because you use the word occupation. Right. You take heat <laughs> from the right. Right. You don't like that you use the word. Uh, but at the end of the day, the whole movement is based around um, maligning Israel for this one conflict that's very, very difficult to solve. And in that case, there's no room for love, is there? Yeah, the question is, what will be left after the occupation would end? Let's say there's a Palestine tomorrow. What is the connection of those Jewish activists that are, that their connection to Israel is anti-occupation? What will be left after that? That's that's a big question. I think that's something that I'm asking them, and they don't know. They don't know the answer because all they know is that they're against the occupation. Okay, and we know that one day, hopefully, I mean, we, Trump is going to present a deal soon. We'll see what that come, what that looks like. But the occupation might end one day, and with that, their love to the country will end. And then what? That's what a, what identity they have as as, uh, as Zionists or Jews that support. Also, Israel. a group like J Street, right. a similar thing. They they promote something amazing, the two state solution. We all dream about about that. Right. Uh, but as they promote it, it's just so based on kind of pressuring Israel to sort of make it happen as if, you know, the other side needs to play ball too. But it's so right. focused on this intractable conflict that the bigger picture and the bigger context of Israel as this messy, vibrant, complicated society kind of gets lost in the picture because we're so obsessed with the outcome. 
Exactly. You yeah. know, I, I was in a, in a university a few days ago. Can't remember which. I'm in a new university every day. But a student came up to me and said, you know, she's a reform uh, a Jew and she really loves Israel and she wants to go to rabbinical school after after she graduates. Um, but she tells me, you know, I can't really have a meaningful engagement and conversation about Israel because there's no room for anything else but this conflict. All I need to speak about is this conflict. And we and I had amazing conversation with her about the women of the wall, about social justice, about uh, you know uh, recognizing reforms. Uh, in the, that's something that we have to work on in Israel and there's a lot of issues that we can't even address and we can't even tackle because Israel is a country that is constantly under the, under attack and Israelis are defensive when it gets to Israel and I and I know that I know that because I have both the experience of being in America and being in Israel and Israelis feel like when there's BDS we we have to protect ourselves strong and not allow any changes um, and I think that's that's why I do what I do I really believe that if we uh, if we can have a, a level-headed conversation about Israel and, and allow other opinions and other issues in into the room other than this this conflict because I don't know if the conflict will end next year, but, you know. Well, I just had a new thought. Yeah. I've only been thinking about this for 20 <laughs> years around the clock. Right. I just had a new thought. Because normally, whenever you hear beyond the conflict, well, you just jump right to startup nation and blah, 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 right? Uh, and all the great things that Israel right. does. Although today it couldn't land on the moon. I'm a little upset. <laughs> Didn't you know. land perfectly. Oh, well, we got very close. We that's got close. We got close to the moon. Yeah, that's Israel, you know? That's Israel. We got very close. close. No cigar. <laughs> so, um... So now, if we want to go in addition to the Palestinian conflict, why don't we talk about other conflicts? So this uh, woman you spoke to, this student mm -hmm. you spoke to, says, you know, it's all about the conflict. Okay, let's continue. There are a lot of other conflicts in Israel that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if we're uh, evading difficult conversation. We're just uh, adding more difficult conversation because there's such an obsession with the one conflict that, by the way, is almost a checkmate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've spoken to people who are desperate for two-state solution and who are as fair and even-handed and analytical as you can imagine. And they said, right now, it's almost a checkmate. It, 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 it's almost unsolvable right now, right? So what if we talk about other conflicts in Israel, the conflict with the refugees, the conflict with Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews, the conflict with uh, poverty in the periphery, the fact that Startup Nation is so focused in Tel Aviv. Go for it. Yeah. Because secular and religious. Secular and religious, there's so many conflicts. Mm -hmm. The power grabbing by the mm -hmm. chief rabbinate. Right. So it's not as if, you know, uh, Israel lovers are running away from these conflicts. We're just tired of talking about the one conflict that can't be fixed right now, <laughs> exactly. you know? Uh, so I, I just want to throw that out to you as a possibility because in, in those other conflicts, I get a, there's a little more emotion mm -hmm. involved because, you know, you see more possibility. There are so many lawyers fighting for the rights of these refugees and there's things happening in the Supreme Court and right. there's social justice organizations in Israel that are kind of trying to, you know, address these other conflicts. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I actually love this idea. I think that's something we need to present more to that. There's there's an opportunity for social justice activism that is not just about the conflict. And you're right. I mean, people are really tired of hearing about it. But uh, it's the it's the most you know, like, unlike other conflicts, there's a there's a really well oiled machine that is working day and night to promote this conflict and day make and it night. into yeah day and night. You know, I often wonder what would the world do. If there was no occupation, <laughs> right. it's the one albatross they have around Israel's neck, yeah. and they take full advantage of it. It's the, it's, the, it's the one kind of weapon that they use. Now, speaking of the Palestinian conflict, mm -hmm. I don't know if you read Micha Goodman's uh, piece. It was in The Atlantic last week. Yeah. And it's, How uh, to minimize the conflict. Oh, my it? God. Yeah. It was yeah. absolutely brilliant. Right. Of the thousands of things I've read about mm -hmm. the conflict yeah. over the years, this was the best thing I've ever read, and uh, he's a he's a deep philosopher, mm -hmm. I think, but but also understands the the street. Mm -hmm. you know, he's been in the army, right? Uh, so this idea of not solving the conflict but shrinking it, right? And he has eight steps to shrink yeah. the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was one of the most insightful things I've ever heard, mm -hmm. because it's so practical and it's doable. Because one of the problems with the conversation. Uh, about the conflict is it never goes anywhere because right. people say, well, we need to end the occupation. And I'm saying, okay, I agree. It's not a question of 
whether that's a good idea or not. It's a question of how do you do it? Right. And then he sort of tackled that head on. Yeah. And it's an approach now that I see in many in academic institutions that they're speaking about. Not It's not conflict resolution. It's conflict management. And it's how to, even if you can't uh, solve be, it. He went beyond that. Yeah. Because yeah, the yeah. conflict management has been around right. for years. It's like, you know, um, like diabetes. We right. need to manage it. The, the genius of his idea is that he went beyond management to shrinking. Yeah. And even the yeah. word is just brilliant. Yeah, I We're agree. <laughs> shrink the conflict. So, for example, you know, uh, you're not. If you stay in Ramallah, you're fine. But if you have a wedding in Janin, uh, it could take you eight hours, mm-hmm. right? So he gets into the kind of hardships that are happening in you know in the West Bank, yeah. and he has these. He, he spent like a year talking to uh, people all over Israel and programs that have been thought about in the army and different officials. And he dug up these ideas. For example, the building of tunnels, of special roads, so that instead of eight hours, you can get there in one hour and you won't have to go through one Israeli roadblock and it doesn't jeopardize Israeli security. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole article is based on these kind of practical ideas that shrink the conflict, right. shrink the pain that Palestinians endure, without uh, jeopardizing Israeli security. And, and those ideas are there, but no one talks about them because right. they're not very sexy. Right. You know? And it's, and it's also not easy to understand those ideas. I mean, I read the article as well. It's, it's, it's complicated stuff. I served in the, in the West Bank, Judean Samaria, for five years. I worked in Hebron, in Ramallah, in Jerusalem periphery. I know how complicated it is. And my work was with Palestinians, so I also worked with them on a daily basis. Um, but it's just like... What was that like? <laughs> Um, that was interesting. I mean, my work there was uh, as part of COGA, the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories. My work was to work on infrastructure projects, to promote infrastructure projects for the Palestinians. Um, it was, you know, it's a, it's a difficult situation to be in. I think that's, that's what gave me all my understanding of how to, uh, how to be an intermediary. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in an environment that everyone dislikes me. The Palestinians don't like me because I'm an officer. I was working with the UN. They hate me because I'm an officer in uniform. I um, was working with the Jewish settlers that looked at me as someone that helps the other side, you know, cooperator. Even the soldiers, the combat soldiers that are doing security, I was running up to them with the Geneva Convention, and they, got, and, you know, they just tried to shut me down, and what they want to do their proper oh, job. So you got perfect training for what you're doing <laughs> exactly. now, for being hated by everybody. Exactly. It's great training. Oh, my God. Who loves you? Thank God for my your mom, mother. My mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to change. Thank God for mother. That will never, ever change. Do you have siblings? I have an older brother, yeah. And where does he live? Uh, he lives in Tel Aviv as well. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Petah mm-hmm. yeah. And it wasn't easy. Ah, no, it wasn't. Right? Like, when did your parents move to Israel? Um, 1951, from Iraq, and 1951, from Tunisia at the same time. Um, yeah, and Petah Tikva is, uh, was, um, was difficult. I mean, my grandmother had 12 kids from my mother's side. From my dad, from my father's side, they had 16 kids. Um, so, yeah, it was Yeah, hard. they didn't have cable. They didn't have cable. So. <laughs> or the uh, internet, 16 kids. Right, wow. Right. It's um, pretty good. But we were happy. That's, that's one thing I remember. We were always happy. And I was talking to my mother about that because they were 11 kids, oh, yeah. you know, in Casablanca. <laughs> right. And, oh, my God, the hardships. And then, you know, one family lives in one room and the other family lives in the other room. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's like, oh, my God, you know, the, the stuff that we complain about, like air conditioning is down, you know, for an hour. And... That's where we ended up with the conversation is despite all the hardships and all this kind of lack of comfort mm-hmm. that we're so used to, that's what she said. She says, we're happy because we had the coziness of a neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. We were always surrounded by kind of by humanity mm-hmm. and, and friends and neighbors and family. I guess that buys you a lot of, you know, tolerance for discomfort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's probably what your parents, yeah. you know. Yeah, My yeah. grandfather, they moved to... Uh, she comes home in Ashkelon. Oh wow! Yeah, from uh, Casablanca. I didn't know that. That's yeah, funny. and you know, t- t- tiny little you know house, seven kids in one room, and he's in. Ashkelon is where this uh, Moroccan singer uh, uh, ended up, Zahra Al Fassi. She was a big, f- uh, famous singer in Morocco, a Jewish singer. And then she moved to Israel and ended up in Ashkelon uh, with not even money to pay her bills, and she died in poverty, which was. Crazy, because she was the first female singer in Morocco. I think there was a film about her yeah, that yeah, I remember seeing here at the Sephardic yeah. uh, Film Festival. I mean, one day I was—I I took a bus. I was there, uh, landed at 11 p.m., and I didn't know where my parents, li- my grandparents lived. And I went into this 
little places, all these Israelis smoking Marlboro cigarettes. <laughs> and I asked one of them, Yamin Biton. He said, oh, I know where he lives. He's my grandfather. So they walked me like seven blocks. I'll take you to Yamin. There's a real sort of uh, familiarity mm-hmm. in Israeli culture that really uh, has a hold on Israelis I meet in L.A. or New York. If The one thing they miss the most about Israel, I think it's that street flavor, yeah. that fact that, you know, the stranger is familiar. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that you know each other. You feel like you know each other, you know? And you have never lived elsewhere? Um, so. I lived for like six months in New York once and in Seattle for a couple of years. And then how did you end up in this position of being a sort of representative, if you will, unofficial, unofficial representative yeah. of <laughs> Israel, and now you're speaking all over the country on different campuses. How did your journey take you here? Um, well, I started uh, with several pro-Israel organizations. I, I saw this. I thought I was going to do it for a year, and then I'm going to move back to Israel and, and continue my life, and good luck to the American Jewish community. Uh, but I saw that I could really make a difference. I, I connected with uh, Mark Bloom. is a, uh, a philanthropist from uh, Seattle that we started working on projects together for knowing for eight years. He's an amazing man, really visionary. Um, and I just, you know, I kept on, on doing it. So now when I'm back in Israel, I have a daytime job. I, I do social media for companies um, as strategists. But at night, I, you know, fight Nazis online. So <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Now, what did you do after the army? Um, so I moved to Seattle immediately. Then I for two years and I moved back t- to Israel I uh, studied in Bar Ilan I studied uh, Middle Eastern Studies um, mm-hmm. uh, I thought I was going to, to keep on doing it and um, but then I shifted to social media that's my you know that's what I do now professionally but thinking long term I do think that I'll at some point we'll have to join the, the government or, or run for office you know Great. Uh, next Prime Minister of Israel we have it right here in Jewish <laughs> Journal Studios right. Ex- Explain to me why every time I go to Tel Aviv I think this is, I don't know, greatest city in the freaking world. I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. You're not. No. Every time I go to Tel Aviv, and it's like, you know, I, I, it's sticky and it's humid and all that. And I always get this feeling that there's no city like this in the world. There's Maybe, no city like that. You yeah. know, is it, it this love of life? First of all, it, it, I get the sense that nobody stays in their apartment. <laughs> no, never. Tel Aviv. I'm walking through the streets at night. There is no one in their apartment. <laughs> Everybody's outside. Everybody's you get outside. the old Russian guy <laughs> in his like pajamas, right. walking a dog. It's like, what is it about that city? It's you know, there's something for everyone to love. I mean, I, I speak to my. I have a hipster friend from uh, from Portland. He tells me he loves it because it's the most hipster city on earth. I have another friend that is you know is a is a foodie. He loves food. He says that's the greatest city for food in the world. Uh, gay friends are telling me that's the gayest city in the place. Everyone thinks that it's you know. And then you have Maccabi Tel Aviv, the right. basketball game, right? The soccer game. Yeah, everyone thinks that it's like it's the perfect city for their community. So I feel like everyone has some sort of connection to the country. Vegans now feel like it's the most vegan place on the planet. I I think Tel Aviv is just so unique and so and so small, but like everything is is there. Like there's nothing that you you need anywhere. You know, you need to go anywhere else to to look for. You get everything, culture, uh, history. Right, and from what I hear, there's all, also a little bit of a spiritual movement happening yeah. in Tel Aviv, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. Um, there's new synagogues that are trying to connect young Tel Avivians to uh, to to Judaism. It's amazing because I think you know I grew up with feeling that I'm I'm still saying that I'm Jewish and secular, you know, but I'm. You know that being secular Jew means that I don't believe in God, but the God that I don't believe in is the Jewish God, so I'm Jewish, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. So I, so I still sounds own, like Shani, right? <laughs> Your daughter, um, she's awesome, by the way. Oh, thanks. Uh, you did good job. I totally agree. <laughs> Um, no, so I mean, we still keep. I'm, I'm going to Friday dinners with my family. I'm, I'm celebrating the holidays. You can't really escape the holidays in Israel because it's there. You can't. One of the coolest things about Tel Aviv is Friday sundown. Yeah. You get. Thousands and thousands of people on the street, yeah. and then for a couple of hours, it gets a little it's quieter. Quiet, I know, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then two so hours maybe. later, they're all back because <laughs> they all went to dinner with their families. They all went for to dinner with the family, right. you know, like they're probably totally secular. <laughs> yeah, but they're gonna do the Shabbat meal. Yeah, and then they're just completely back out. Uh, I remember during the famous, you know, Rothschild, mm-hmm. the tent cities. Remember? Yeah. Were you there that summer? No, I wasn't. It's amazing because they had at the same time mm. that Occupy Wall Street was happening in America. Right. So you had these like, you know, encampments of people hanging out and sleeping on the street as a sign of protest. Right. And it was happening in Israel 
at the same time. And I was there that summer. I spent a month, and every night I would go to Rothschild, and there was another street I forgot, and I would like just walk up and down to see all the tents, the protesters. They had like this sushi thing that they made fun of the prime minister of, and I was with a friend of mine from uh, the Milken Institute who has perfect Hebrew, and he was translating everything for me. And the thing that blew me away, they had these professors from mm -hmm. university in all these encampments. They were doing classes. They had these conversations wow. in the middle of all these protests and demonstrations. I think only in Israel yeah. do you actually have intellectual conversations in the middle of the protest. And I wrote about that. I call it Salon Nation. You know, they have these <laughs> salons on the streets in the middle of the tents. And I guess it's part of the Israeli gene to always want to talk about stuff. Right. And, that, and that's what they did. And I think that's part of the Tel Aviv gene as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the best way to promote Israel to young people because young people would love that, to see that. Um, back in Israel, I think we need to do more to get out of Tel Aviv, by the way. I think, you know, we're, we're in our bubble in Tel Aviv and thinking that everything, you know, that everything is set here. And just like the recent elections, we... You know, we understand that it's not about Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is... Well, you know, there's a whole thing. We did a cover story a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a movement uh, funded by the Paul Singer Foundation called Startup Nation Central. Mm -hmm. And the whole mission is to take the innovation energy behind Startup Nation and spread it throughout the country, in the periphery, in the Haredi world, in the Arab world. It's a really... And, yeah. and they're really making a difference because it's so needed. There was a report com that came out from Israel, uh, um, um, the, an organization that does studies on, on income, and they show that there's a 30% gap between Ashkenazi Jews and Israeli and Mizrahi Jews um, in, in income a uh, year, like more than 30%. And they, and they say that a lot of it is because of the startup, uh, startup uh, um, nation in, in Tel Aviv. That is, um, most of the people that work there are, are Ashkenazim. Um, that's a studies. that's a sensitive subject because I'm Sephardic too, and my family, you know, suffered some discrimination. Right, yours as well. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's it's tough topic to speak about because I, I feel like the Jewish community it's an open wound that we never we never got to solve and we never got to talk about. And until today, people dismiss it as if either you know Mizrahim Sephardim are crybabies or uh, or that it's going to hurt us or divide us. I don't think it's going to divide us. It's something that we need to talk about to solve this and move forward. I mean, the fact that today in Israeli academia, only 9% of academics are Mizrahim, or the fact that um, um, the people that own land in Tel Aviv or apartments in Tel Aviv, 90% of them are Ashkenazim. Um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the income gap. There's, these issues are being ignored, and I think you know, they keep on being dismissed within Israel and also in general in the Jewish community. Um, I think it's something that we have to tackle, and we, uh, and until we'll tackle it, we won't be able to really move forward. Well, we see a lot of that in America too. Although right. it's starting to change, there's a sense that the dominant image of Judaism is always sort of Ashkenazi, yeah. and the Ashkenazitivity, yeah, yeah, and the Sephardic's kind of a little sideshow, right. if you will. Yeah. And but it's it's starting to change. You know, I think uh, sometimes uh, Sephardim are, are are seen too much just as a in a quaint cultural way. They got great food and they got great music, and so much of the intellect gets lost. Yeah, uh, the Sephardic and the philosophers and the intellect yeah. and the, the it's such a heritage that 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 the Sephardim and, and the Mizrahim have, and and it's just being dismissed. I mean. You know, when we came to Israel, when my family came to Israel, it was they they felt the same thing. I mean, the, there was no room for any of their their culture was not perceived as culture. It was perceived as barbaric culture that has no room in this new Israel. You know, and that's now that has changed, by the way. Yeah, that has changed. Right in terms of the music. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, the influences of Mizrahi music. <laughs> Everyone wants oh, to be Mizrahi now. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 for sure. I'm a, I'm Ashkenazi, but you know what? All my friends are Sephardic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I might as well be Sephardic. I checked on 23 and me. I'm Sephardic. Yeah. My great grandfather's from Spain. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, and also intermarriages. Yeah. You know, among Ashkenazi and Sephardic, it's happened a lot. So there's a lot more integration. But yeah. what you're saying is there's still a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. There, I think there's a long way to go, and I think we need to. There, there's a lot of areas that Mizrahim are, and Sephardim are still underrepresented in Israel, and I think it's something that um, we need to work on. And that's actually my next project. So uh, you know, one area I'd like to see them more represented mm -hmm. is when we uh, encounter and engage with Arab countries. Yeah, we speak Arabic. My mother's fluent in Arabic. Right. 
You know, if she ever sat down with Mahmoud Abbas, they would talk Arabic for an hour. <laughs> exactly. He might love her her food. Pro- probably you know, more than she, he loves Netanyahu. <laughs> oh, my God. She'd make him an amazing couscous. He said, you know what? I'm ready to talk peace. This food is, this food right. is like feels like home. Right. I have a, a, a great Muslim friend from Morocco, mm-hmm. Arab Muslim. He comes to our house for Shabbat. He, he tastes my mother's food. He says, this is what I grew up with. So talk about bridge building. You know, and there are, I mean, my God, there's millions of Sephardic Jews in Israel who speak Arabic. Yeah. And you would think. Not only speak Arabic as a language, but understand the Arabic culture and understand, and and coming from there. You can learn Arabic. Anyone can learn Arabic. Yes, correct. You don't know how to really speak it unless you're coming from from that house, you know? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, part of me is a dreamer. Right. It's part of my dreams. Same. It, it is, you know, th- those of us who only have one eyebrow should really be the ones on the front lines of dealing with I the mean, We nations. are the bridge. We are the bridge to the to Middle East peace, I think. So there's a lot of parts to you, Ken. I mean, you know, you, you have the intersectionality, if you will. You've got the progressive values. You're part of the LGBTQ community and the pro-Israel community and the Sephardic community. So how do you... Sort of, how do you how do you sort of live with all of that? Do you say, well, one day I'm going to promote this side of me and that side, or do you do it all together? I I do it all. I do everything I can because I I care. You know, I I'm doing what I'm doing because it's um, there's several reasons. More most importantly is my mom and my family. I do it for my family because of what they've been through and much. And my are your parents alive? Yeah, yeah. My mom and my dad are. Are alive. they proud of you? Uh, what do they think you do? Do they think you're a doctor? <laughs> Have you told them? They're seeing videos online of you know yeah. of me on Sky News and BBC. They don't understand what's going on. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm famous, proud. mom. I'm right. famous. Yeah, and I'm making a little bit of money. Don't worry, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah. yeah. My mom still thinks I should have gone to law school, but that's all right. Of course. She's, <laughs> she's she's happy to see that I'm uh, that I'm. Uh, on Facebook, she follows me on Facebook. She does, she, yeah, and she's she's enjoying what she sees. She doesn't understand much of it, but have you encountered like some serious conflict on 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 campus? Maybe some heckling from yeah. uh, pro BDS. Give us an example of some really uh, difficult situation wow. you encountered. Yeah, the worst. Which thing, campus? Yeah, the worst thing is happened actually outside of the U.S. In the U.S., I do get protest every once in a while. You know, people would come with signs, or will do a walkout, or a walkout is when they get up and they put tape on their mouth and they're just walking outside. The You've room. had that. Yeah. Oh, Where? Um, Where? I had that in Florida. I had that in New York. Um, I had that in. Where else? I think also in Seattle. Uh-huh. And, um, and and do you respond to them? Do you do you comment on it? Right. So my my thing is that I I always uh, I'm not engaging with the protesters because they're so I mean not not to change their mind. I'm not going to change their mind. Mm-hmm. I came there with tapes and Palestine flag and you know I don't know signs with my name. They they have they have a they're, they're fanatic. I feel so. I'm you know what I tell them? Yeah. When I speak, I said I'm here on behalf of the Palestinian people. And um, the message is stop insulting us, stop treating us like babies, stop right. treating us as if we have no responsibility for our situation, right. and and hold us to the same standards that right. you hold everybody else. And Israel makes a lot of mistakes, but they shouldn't have all the blame. We also should take part responsibility. This is what I tell them. Yeah. You know, because how often do you ever hear the protesters to speak about Palestinians? Never. I've never heard a case for Palestine on campuses that is that is a case for a Palestinian case, a state. And there is a case to be made for a Palestinian case, but it's Correct. always about why Israel shouldn't exist, why Israel is the problem. And I think as long as they can convince themselves that there should be a Palestinian state that has nothing to do with Israel, and that unless they can make this case, they will never have a, a real case to and, make. And the reason that is self-destructive, in right. my view, is that it perpetuates mm-hmm. the idea that Palestinians are the 100% victims and the Israelis are 100% uh, uh, guilty right. of the thing. And, and, and if you perpetuate that, then there's nothing that encourages Palestinians to just step up to the plate and well, say... Why should they? Right. Yeah. I right. mean, if, if everything gets... If they, if they can do whatever they want and always be the saint in this situation, like, why would they want to change? Why would they want a country? I mean, why would Abbas ever think about doing elections in the Palestinian Authority. I mean, right, right. 14 years. Right. If, if, if I had to put my finger on one real, like, horrible consequence of this tsunami of let's blame Israel that we've seen all around the world for the past 10, 15 years, it would be that 
it has kept the Palestinians in an almost helpless situation. It has in incentivized Palestinians to stay in this helpless victim kind of situation. Right. They're off the hook yeah. because it's only Israel's fault. And uh, ironically, it just has, has been horrible for the Palestinians, that approach. Yeah. And that's the great irony, isn't it? Yeah. So please start talking about that <laughs> when you go on campus. <laughs> the worst thing that ever happened for the Palestinians is the BDS movement. Yeah. Because it basically said, stay in your tents, stay in your refugee camps, because it's all Israel's fault. Right. There's nothing you guys can do. And the UN, I mean, the whole idea of Palestinian refugees, that it's like something that you can pass on to your kids, that Gigi Hadid is a Palestinian refugee, the supermodel that is on Vogue. She's a Palestinian refugee. She can apply for funding from the UN, from her Beverly Hills mansion. So I think Seriously? that's... Yeah, yeah. She's, she and her, and her sister. And Please write a column on that for the Jewish <laughs> Journal. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm okay, done. cool. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, the biggest problem. I mean, that they still... There, there's maybe 30,000, 20,000 Palestinian refugees, original refugees, but their descendants today are 7 million and as long as they believe that there are refugees and one day they're going to go back to Israel or to Palestine or wherever they they believe they're going to go to um, it's not going to happen and I think the sooner they will realize that the sooner they'll be accountable like other you know like anyone else not like children then we can see a difference have you heard any 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 gossip on any scoops on the famous ultimate peace plan from uh The Trump administration? Not scoops, but I read online that there's going to be some involvement with Saudi Arabia, with Jordan, Jordan. yeah, um, some land swap. It might work. I mean, as if Saudi Arabia is involved in it and Jordan, I think that's... And also, I mean, the people that are in power, Trump and Bibi, um, it's not a good sign for Abbas. And I think he realizes it with the UN funding cuts, with the uh, American cutting on fundings. I think he understands that it's not in a good position. Um... I spoke to Jason Greenblatt the oh, other night. really? He, he had an event here. Oh, you tell me at, then. <laughs> at Jacob. Oh, my God. You know, obviously, he can't kind of right. tell us the details. However, there's stuff he said that's kind of really interesting. Because he got challenged by people in the audience. Because mm -hmm. uh, Mahmoud Abbas has already said no. He hasn't even seen it. Yeah. So why are you guys wasting your time? He's already said no. And reading between the lines... I got a sense that they're going to make a major effort with the people. That's exactly the language you use, with the wow. people. Wow. So the That's idea amazing. is that, I mean, I, you know, for all the criticism about the Trump administration, most of it totally justified. Right. You know, the one thing that you can't criticize them on is they've taken this unbelievably thorough approach to this conflict. Yeah. And it's not a joke. Like for a whole year, all they did was talk to thousands and thousands of people yeah. from everywhere on all levels. That's for real, for right. a whole year. And then they've and been... And Kushner is on TV in Arabic. I mean, when, whenever was representative of American government on TV in Arabic, you know? It's like, yes. It's not so something they do usually. It really, I mean, you know, as opposed to just sort of coming in, which is what's happened since Oslo, yeah. you know, everybody sort of parachutes in and has these big meetings in Ritz-Carlton's and King David hotels and fancy hotels right. and with chandeliers and it's one, you know, thousands of meetings that went nowhere. Right. You know, what these guys did is they rolled up their sleeves, they just talked, they went on a listening tour for a whole year, they kept their mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And all they wanted to do was inhale everything from all angles, from all the parties, from the settlers to the Palestinians at the refugee camps, you name it, wow. all the segments. This is what they did for a whole year. And then when they finally crafted this, this plan, it was designed for people to kind of say, hey, maybe there's hope with this. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, they've already said that nobody's going to be happy with it <laughs> in terms of each party's going to have to compromise. And they've tried to sort of thread the needle. Right. We'll see what happens. I mean, the likelihood is still really, really low that anything really can happen, but at least... There's some possibility, and apparently it's going to come out very soon. Oh, yeah, that's what they're saying. I mean, I think with all the, the gifts that Israel has been receiving, uh, I think they're getting us ready for A for big something. ask. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. A big ask and uh, a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem, perhaps, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then, you know, you got 80,000 settlers outside of the settlement blocks, yeah. Yeah. which is a very, very complicated problem. Uh, and now you got a coalition with Bibi. Yeah. I wrote a piece this morning, you know, I said, put your country first and hook up with Gantz. Yeah. I mean, we haven't had in Israel 
two huge parties like this that have 35 seats. Yeah. So 70, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen. BB says Israel first, but I don't know if he is 100% there. I mean, he is. I, I, think, he's pre- I think in his mind, he does think that is is the best thing this country can ever have. But it's just like, it's important for him to really walk the walk there and understand that there's a greater... I mean, if him, him and Gantz would work together... It would be amazing. Yeah, but he would rather go with Lieberman that can change his mind tomorrow and break the government rather than going with Gantz. Yeah, I think, you know, Bibi, you know, he's very talented, obviously. And, you know, I've read all kinds of stuff. And, you know, Israelis are kind of happy with the situation, with security, the economy, international diplomacy. It's not as if there's some huge crisis that Israelis feel, you know, we need to change. So the status quo is pretty decent for them. And, you know, he's the guy they know. So there's an argument to make for why they voted for him. But, you know, you get a million-plus Israelis voted for blue and white, mm-hmm. who are centrist. Right. It's not BB. Right. And you need to kind of listen to that collective voice of all the millions of Israelis who voted for Likud and blue and white. That's like 70 seats. That hasn't happened in decades. Right. Where two big parties can hook up because the problem now is Bibi's approach. He gives enormous power to these small extremist parties. Mm-hmm. You know, Shas would love it if Israel became a theocracy. Oh, yeah. They'd love to yeah. give you a ticket if they see you driving on Shabbat. Yeah. That would be their their, <laughs> yeah. their dream. Yeah. yeah. $30 ticket, $50, you right. know. Um, so, you know, they have their own extremist dogmatic agendas. Yeah. And then and you people have, say that, you know, at least they're better than the Arab Arab parties, but I'm saying well the Arab parties are not, I mean they're okay, they're not Zionist as the as the as the religious ones, but they're they're paying taxes and right. they're you know and they're willing to sit in the coalition now. They're talking if if it was guns, they were willing to sit in the coalition. So I think yeah, you're Yeah, why not? And then you have, you know, the political extremists on the far right, they right. they they'd be happy to annex the whole West Bank tomorrow. Yeah. Right? And these are like minority right. real minority views in Israel and the mainstream of Israel needs to be represented in the coalition and he's got a unique opportunity it's still not too late he's got a couple of weeks of horse trading to go yeah you know i think probably the indictment yeah really complicates the picture um yeah i don't think this government will survive for too long with with the indictment and in the summer is going to have a hearing about it and then they'll decide if to um if to what the sentence will be about him um so i do i don't i don't see this government if if it's going to go on the on the path of Bibi and the right wing, uh, and not Bibi and Gantz, it's not going to last for long. Yeah, because it's been, you know, too long already yeah. that you have these religious extremists in mm-hmm. the coalition. Yeah. And what it does, it forces the leaders of Israel to develop these policies that really alienate so much of the diaspora yeah. and many Israelis. And it's really hurt the Israel brand. Yeah. And those guys, they, they, they just don't deserve... No. To be in power. No, no. I mean, it's one thing if they decided to pay tax and to join the army and Correct. to become, you know, but, but they're resisting to it. They want us to do it and they think it's legitimate. You know, they think that the fact that we don't study Torah three years is a problem for them. Right. And that, that's exactly the problem by give, putting them in a position of power exactly. where they can take down the government mm-hmm. is they use that power to perpetuate something that's very corrosive, yeah. which is the Haredim don't risk their lives you know, to go to the army. So there are so many problems in Israel, the country that you love. (laughs) You can't convince me. I still love it. (laughs) Oh, man. I think it's part of the whole picture, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I love about it. Yeah, you know, I think Michael Oren once said that Israel is not a work of progress. It's a work in progress. And I think that's what I love about Israel the most, that I can see myself in it. I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. And I'm working on myself all the time. And that's, that's what Israel does. You know, I... I was writing a column years ago. I said, I just need like three words. Just capture this this country. And it was very close to yours. But I called it a mess in progress. A mess in progress. <laughs> That's true, yeah. yeah. It's messy. It's messy. And, and part of the mess that a lot of people uh, forget about is there are thousands of social justice organizations mm-hmm. that are constantly, you know, get up in the morning trying to make the country a better place. And the mere fact that you're allowed to do that legally Mm-hmm. that you can be an Arab citizen and the police will protect you if you have a demonstration. That right. might be taken for granted here. But in the Middle East, 
it's not taken for granted. Yeah, a Palestinian can a Palestinian with a Palestinian ID can can go to the Israeli Supreme Court and they do all the time and you know they can apply to the Supreme Court and that's that's a legal process that is unheard of, you know, in 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 any country in the Middle East but also in other countries. And you know, one thing that is important to understand, and I see that people don't understand on campuses when I speak about Israel, people that are that are not involved is that when we go to our wars, when we go to the army, it's not like American army, it's not like UK army, it's not like armies that are sending their soldiers thousands of miles away from their house to fight a war for oil or gas or, or democracy or whatever ideas countries have. Uh, we are driving two hours away from our houses to do this, this you know, to fight for our, for our country. And I think that's something that um, it, it changes the perspective and it changes everything in, in the environment of, of the country and, uh, and how it operates, especially with a conflict like, like the conflict that we have. Yeah, a mile away, your uncle's doing Shabbat. Exactly. And you want him to feel safe. Exactly. But then on the other hand, your uncle is a mile away. So if you're going to do something that is terrible, you know that your mother is right there. So that's mm -hmm. also, I think mm -hmm. that's, the, that's what makes the army, the Israeli army so unique. Yeah, it's family. Yeah. All right. So last question. Talk to me about the next year of your life. What what what's on, what's in the works? Um, wow, a lot. I mean, I'm I'm going to. I really enjoy writing. I'm going to write more articles for the Jewish Journal. <laughs> and I was just about to say that you took the words out of my mouth. Um, yeah, I'm going to continue doing that. That this work. Um, I think you know this this conversation with American Jewry is so important. With global Jewish community. They have to have a play within. I mean, we expect them to be there for us. We need to listen to them, and I feel like I'm able to do this, to, to be this bridge. Um, and back in Israel, I'm going to continue to work for things that I care about, for social justice, um, for LGBTQ, for Mizrahim, Sephardim, that's uh, my communities, um, but also other communities um, that are less fortunate than us. And Well, you know, Han, if that first thing you just said, it's one of the biggest issues now mm -hmm. in our community is the schism between yeah. the Jewish community in America and the Jewish community in Israel. Right. And it will go further and further apart. And I get a sense that we're just sort of bemoaning it, mm -hmm. complaining about it, and, you know, and saying, oh, it's bad. And part of it is we have to just accept the fact that we're really two different societies. And when you're in a society where, you know, 99% of everybody you come into contact with is Jewish, and here it's sort of the opposite. You know, it's normal that the two communities are going to evolve differently. Correct. You know, both the Judaism itself mm -hmm. and the community itself. So we shouldn't beat up, beat ourselves up too much. But I, I love what you said about trying to become a bridge between both so we can, I don't know, what's the, what's the non-cliche way of saying it? Engage without beating each other up, you know? Yeah, being a family, I think that's what it's about. I mm -hmm. mean, just remembering that we are family. And for me, it's that's when I say it when I'm a secular Jew. That's what it's about. It's about being part of the Jewish people. And um, yeah. and also to try to, I don't know, understand the, the other side, because sometimes we always project. Right. So, you know, if you're a Reformed Jew in America, you absolutely are bewildered why they will not have that special place for you at the hotel, which, mm -hmm. by the way, I'm all for egalitarian Same, yeah. there, Me you know. Uh, but the Israeli society there doesn't make a big deal of it, and why is it, and why is it that Israeli society does not make a big deal of denominations like reform and conservative? Mm -hmm. the, the, two, the, the two communities are so different. Right. And a lot of times, you know, I speak to my friends here in America, and they just don't understand <laughs> why Israelis can't just understand the way... Our lives, our, our Judaism here is so different. So I think we just need a more of a middle ground mm -hmm. where we can disagree, but at least understand why we disagree. And listen to each other, yeah. I think what, you know, Bibi made a big mistake to go back on the agreement mm -hmm. at, at the wall. That was a big mistake. And, and you know, and one day Israel should come here and have a GA here as well yeah. and say, we need to talk. Yeah. And because maybe... They should criticize us a little bit <laughs> and tell us what we're doing wrong. And how the hell did you ever get Donald Trump and stuff? And I, I didn't want to say it, but okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> why not? Why can't it be a two-way street? Uh, people are saying, how did Bibi want? And I've seen this this sign of Bibi and Trump on the highway in Tel Aviv. Huge sign that it says, you know, a, a different league of Bibi. That was his election campaign, that Trump endorsed him without even saying it. But everyone knew that this was what it was about. So, I mean, Israelis are looking at it and they're saying, well, the greatest superpower voted for Trump. Trump loves Bibi. Who am I going to vote for, you know, yeah. if you want to be a different league? But 
you know, America is completely dysfunctional right, right. now. Right. It's never been more dysfunctional. Right? Which started I can J remember. Street in Israel. So, <laughs> yeah, so you know what? I think maybe we can use some criticism ourselves. And you look at England, for example. They're completely dysfunctional. The country is such a mess. Yeah. So I'm all for beating up Israel, you know. <laughs> but when we beat a lot of other countries up too, you know. Right. For some reason, it's there's an obsession with Israel. Jason uh, Greenblatt used the word beguiling. Mm. And he really got me that night. He said, everywhere I go around the world. Right. It's all they want to talk about. Yeah, Israel, the Palestinian conflict. It's like crazy, but he sold me. He sold me because as soon as I start not thinking about it, I remember what he said, and he's right. Yeah. So for better or for worse, you know, Israel is always going to be under the microscope, and that conflict, you know, should never leave our agenda. Yeah, there is a joke about how uh, a guy is walking down the street in the middle of the night, and uh, and, I, and he sees a guy on the floor trying to look for something, and he says, "What are you doing?" And he says, well, I'm looking for my key. I lost it. And he says, I'll help you look. Where exactly did you lose it? And he said, well, I lost it over there, but the light here is so good that I'm just <laughs> looking here. I hope to find it. So we're looking. Right, we're looking. Sometimes we don't know where to look. Because the light is so good, you know? That's, that's, it's the easiest place to criticize. Everything is, is out the, in the open. There's so much light on everything. Nothing is in the heat, in height. And right, well, you got 21 countries who yeah. don't have freedom of speech. Freedom of the press, right. like Israel has. So if you come from Mars and you see these 22 countries, one of them has freedom of the press. Right. So you're going to think that, my God, this is, the, this is the country. It's the worst country in that whole region right. because they're all complaining. R read what, what it says about them, right? Right. You Just know? look at this. Right. Everywhere, every paper I opened up, it's like a disaster. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, the other 21 countries, seems they don't perfect, right? seem perfect. <laughs> right. They don't let There's you no talk. There's no issues there. Right? No issues. So, yeah, talk about distorted reality. Right. Anyways. Hen, really, it's great to see you. Next time you're Thank in you LA, so much. you know, come back on. Definitely. Good luck and look for his writing in Jewish Journal and JewishJournal.com. Is there a website? Uh, Henmazig.com. Henmazig.com. And follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Henmazig. Henmazig. Beautiful. Henmazig. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure.